You're listening to another episode of The Zag. Eric DeSob here. A returning champion is back, Christopher Low Records, from the NLC class of 2014. It's good to catch up with him. He was on episode 14. I was looking back earlier, so it's been a long time. We're almost 200 episodes plus since then, so hopefully my interviewing prowess and podcasting skills will impress him because he's got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. He's soon to be a published author. You don't want to miss this one. Let's get to it. All right, Chris, since we podcasted last, I have learned how to edit uh, the audio. So if you do want to say completely crazy things, I think you are you should feel much safer than the one-take approach we had to use last time. Okay, I feel liberated. Definitely. Well, I'm always interested in talking to alumni who either A, want to write a book, or A and B, have written one and will soon see it published. And the latter is true for you. You have one coming out in June. Give folks the short summary of, just in general, why you wanted to write a book in the first place. Yeah, well... Um... I started write, writing again after maybe a, a gap of like 10 years um, in, I think, like the spring of 2017. Um, just because, I mean, I, I feel like a lot of us, we were looking for outlets uh, right then, whether it's political action or creativity. Um, and it was just like such a specific psychological moment, like right, out of the, right after the election and just seeing what was happening in the country that... Um, I really just needed some way of expressing some of the thoughts and feelings that I had at that time. Um, and the way that I wanted to do that was just by telling these stories, which are just normal stories of normal queer people living in the place that I came from, which is the Inland Empire. And that's how the book happened. And in terms of process, are you someone who does writing in burst? Are you one of those folks who's very methodical? Let me knock out 60 minutes a day day after day what's your style um well for the for the last two years two three years at least i feel like uh it it all comes very concentrated as these really intense periods of just concentrated writing so um with this particular collection i, I it was 12 stories um about forty-five thousand words which is a small book uh but that happened over the course of I think two or three months so uh, a couple hours a day and then since then I've done a, a couple more novel drafts um, and those have been in pretty much the same way although they've gotten progressively longer um, but yeah very very concentrated periods of time of maybe two three months for a couple hours a day and then last question on, on process, and we'll dig into a little bit on the content. In terms of finding a publisher, what were some of your priorities as you were going through that process? Well, I mean, it's, it's really tough um, to find one uh, literary agents and two then to, to, do a, uh, to find a publisher. Um, I lucked out in finding an independent small press um, that focuses on the region that I was writing about, the Inland Empire. And so um, they reviewed it and they liked it, um, but I, I feel like that was sort of a, a fortuitous, serendipitous thing. Yeah. And so they're able to produce physical hard copies that folks can find on Amazon. Will it be something that you get through their site directly? What's the actual distribution process like? Both. So yeah, it'll be on Amazon and then it'll be on the um, website of the publisher, which is called Inlandia Institute. Um, but yeah. So in terms of content, you mentioned uh, shorter stories. Uh, are these uh, 
stories that tie into each other in kind of the loosest sense? Is it very distinct? You can just pick it up and I want to start in the middle and just read the story. It's self-contained. How would you describe the strategy people should take when they read it? Well, I mean, there, so there are 12 stories. They're all linked by sort of this conceit, which is this idea of um, what I call in the book care centers, which are like sort of assisted living facilities, um, but for people who are going through illness or people who are going through economic dislocation or people who are going through X, Y, or Z. I think what I was trying to get at is this sort of um, sense that the era that we're moving into and we've seen a lot of this with COVID, I mean, accelerated with COVID, is going to render a lot of people sort of redundant. I mean, um, they're going to be economically dislocated, socially dislocated. So that's sort of the conceit that ties them all in, which is that these are people who are sort of moving toward that, um, that state of being in these centers. Um, I wanted to explore that just because I think that the there's a lot to be said for right now sort of the fact that a lot of people are looking for easy solutions easy easy catharsis some sort of end to independence and uncertainty um and so that sort of functions as that in the collection these centers but the 12 stories are really diverse in their focus. So some of them are about family or sex or um, guilt or uh, um, illness. I mean, it's, it's, it's really a lot of different themes that I wanted to explore from a lot of different perspectives. So some of the stories that were told from the perspective of um, you know, a, a queer couple, elderly, um, a, you know, young non-binary person. I really wanted to sort of capture the stories that I don't see very often in mm-hmm. in fiction. So that's, you, I, I guess I didn't really answer your question, but yeah, you can start from any one of them, I suppose. Yeah. You know, one of the phrases that caught my eye when you sent me the description when we were setting up the, the schedule here was a realistically dystopic near future. <laughs> and I'm sure that phrase meant one thing three months ago, a year ago, two years ago when you started, uh, did you at all adapt to the surroundings or was the book already off to the publisher by the time things kind of went sideways or how would you assess that phrase given what, what we're doing now? Well, the stories that are in the book were sent off and haven't really been touched in the last two years. Okay. Um, So some of the things that I wanted to write about and experiment with, uh, I'm kind of happy to, well, not happy to say, unhappy to say, but um, (laughs) I mean, they've sort of stood up. Like I I wrote a story that involves a universal basic income, (laughs) which sounds like, you know, um, and maybe it is sort of, you know, schmaltzy, but uh, I mean, that had I wanted to write about that because I just think that that is like something that is going to be a feature of the future or maybe Mm -hmm. Um, that obviously is in the, in the consciousness and the bloodstream right now for obvious reasons. Um, Some of the stuff about, I mean, there's, uh, there are two stories that involve migration. I mean, that was a a major topic of discussion in 17 and as far back as I can remember and still is now illness. I mean, yeah, so there's not been amendments to it in two years, but I feel like <laughs> some of the same 
issues that are covered in the book or, or things that we're dealing with right now. We go back. We'll talk with Chris a little bit more about the book writing process and the content of his new work that's coming out next month. Thanks for tuning in this episode of The Zag. We'll be right back. Chris, as you're writing, do you show anyone what you're working on? Uh, no, no, I don't. Um, I, I mean, I was very lucky. One of the things that ha- um, one of the features of working with a publisher that's really great that makes it um, easier than I suppose self-publishing is that they give you an editor. So um, that editor was the first person who had, who saw the stories. Um, and he helped a, like a, a great deal in in improving them. And for those not familiar with that more formal editor process, what does that actually look like? Um, well, in in my case, after they after the publisher said that they wanted the book, they assigned me someone who worked with me on the individual stories. He reviewed them all and provided really copious and thorough notes. Um, and then we bandied around drafts. I think about three times, which took maybe five months. Um, and then at the end of that, that was the, that was the um, version that went to press. And you mentioned earlier you wanted to write uh, characters or have profiles of characters uh, that you might not see very often in the literature that you read growing up or that uh, might just not be in the near mainstream or mainstream in general with, with the characters that you chose to, to focus on. Do you remember when you were young and growing up, when was the first time you saw uh, queer characters show up in, in books that you read? Honestly, for me, I don't think that I found uh, found queer characters that resonated until mm-hmm. I was maybe in my mid to late 20s. Um, and I uh, I guess the first queer novel, the queer book that spoke to me was was Giovanni's Room, which is like the... Not a, not original, but basically an American literature original queer novel, which is James Baldwin, um, and that really just because I, these were really dynamic and interesting characters and a really dynamic, interesting story, that involved me. And then in the last couple of years, I feel like I've encountered a lot of those stories, just because there's sort of this renaissance in um, in American literature and in queer literature right now. I mean, really. Um, I mean, Garth Greenwell is is a writer that I turn to all the time, um, whose work is really great. A whole bunch of other folks, um, but yeah, it, I I didn't encounter any queer uh, queer literature that resonated for me until just recently. And do you have a guess on what's going to happen to brick and mortar bookstores? Where do you think the book industry goes from here? I don't. I have no idea. I mean, I hope they survive. Um, and I'm 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 doing my best at patronizing my own local one, which is Romans. But yeah. uh, hopefully, hopefully they'll make out make it out of the other end of this. And I'm always curious when I chat with you what you're consuming content-wise, either for fun or just to to learn. What kind of things have you tried to keep yourself busy with um, in terms of what you're looking at, news-wise or entertainment-wise, since we've gone into the shelter-in-place? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I have stopped watching the news just because. Um, <laughs> It is so infuriating. Uh, and I've, I think what has given me the most, I don't want to say solace, but the, what has been the most interesting to me has been reading uh, hi- history. Um, so I read a book about the 1918 
Spanish flu pandemic. Oh, okay. um, and knowing that, because it has so closely traced from you know the government response to how it spread through society, that has been to a certain extent a little bit calming, just knowing that uh, you know people went through that. And then there's this book called Children of the Great Depression that's this longitudinal <laughs> study of kids who grew up in in the depression in Oakland and that I, I I've been reading that as well um so uh just knowing sort of what this looked like for our grandparents great-grandparents um that that has been a kind of solace Mentioning that historical context of, yeah, to some degree, if not a very close degree, we've gone through these experiences before. At least politically, it's it's still very surprising to me how few electeds mention that fact or even kind of wonder out loud out of just intellectual curiosity. Like, hey, if we are in a Great Depression, what did we do the last time to get out of it? Uh, and what were those policies? And Because the, the policy talk that I see and read about even from the, the left and the progressive side uh, is pretty underwhelming and doesn't really match what at least as my read of history is, is what helped to kind of turn the tide economically for folks. Do you, do you see that too? Do you see kind of like a lack of interest or curiosity in what we did and tried a hundred years ago? Yeah. And I mean, one th- one of the things that frustrates me a lot is very few people talk. And I, I mean, it does connect with the history is that, I mean, depressions have really severe effects on people's mental health and on how they live as people, as kids, as families. And there's ample evidence of, of what that did last time. And so you can sort of, in reading accounts or histories or studies of what that did, you know, uh, I guess 90 years ago, you can anticipate some of the things that people are going to be facing. And I feel like in particular when it comes to education, mm. which is sort of top of my mind, having worked in in that field for my entire professional life, there should be more discussion of that, of like, what does economic dislocation of this kind do to kids and how can we get ahead of that? Yeah, that's well said. Well, listen, one last plug. Tell folks again when the book comes out and how they can find it once it does come out. Yeah, so um, the book comes out June the 1st. You'll be able to find it on Amazon. The title of it is Care Stories. So care colon stories. And then it'll also be on the Inlandia Institute website. You can just Google Inlandia Institute and find it. Sounds great. Well, we'll put that info into the podcast description. Chris, thanks so much for coming on. And thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Zag. Make sure to catch all past episodes in all the places you get your podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher. We've dropped a lot of good ones in the last two, three weeks featuring folks who are tackling COVID on the front lines. We have did a whole series featuring educators and teachers for Teacher Appreciation Week. Check out all those episodes when you can. And until next time, we'll catch you soon.